Welcome to A Meaningful Mess, a podcast for educators that believe that it's okay for learning to be messy as long as it's meaningful. I'm your host, Andy McNair. I'm a wife, mom, author, speaker, and passionate educator. I believe in the generation of learners that sit in today's classrooms, and I absolutely love helping other passionate educators find meaning in their mess. Let's get started. and welcome back to A Meaningful Mess Podcast. Today's episode is going to be all about project-based learning, PBL, and kind of how we can consider what this might look like as we move into our new normal and this, this learning experience that we've kind of been on this roller coaster ride of um, <laughs> this is what it's going to look like. No, this is what it's going to look like. No, this is how it's going to look. There's been so many different conversations and I think right now, a lot of us are gearing up for summer. Um, and, and I know that when I was in the classroom, summer to me meant, meant a little bit of a break and a little bit of rest, but it also meant gearing up for the next school year. And so often I began thinking about that as soon as summer began. And so I know that so many of you, more so this summer than ever before, will be thinking about next year. And so I wanted to just kind of get a head start and and let's start having real conversations about what are some things that we know, regardless of what the situation looks like. Um, you guys can probably hear the train going by. So sorry. It's a beautiful day in Texas and my windows are open. <laughs> so um but that being said, what are some things that we know, regardless of the situation, um, will be powerful and will give our students um, that opportunity to drive their own learning? As we've kind of seen, that's necessary and it's something that we have to make a priority from now on. Before I talk about project-based learning, though, I do want to say that as we think about next year, there are a lot of unknowns. And if you're anything like me, I can tend to get a little bit anxious a little bit fearful when I do not know what's going to happen. Um, and I know that a lot of educators are feeling that right now. Like, how do you prepare for something that you don't even know what it's going to look like? How, how do you do that? And I think I, I was thinking late last night as I was kind of sitting up and thinking through this situation, as I do almost every night. Um, what are some things that we do know? What are some things that we can hold to um, in recognizing that we know this is true? And if these things are true, we're going to be just fine. And so, uh, first of all, we've, we've realized that learning happens everywhere. Yes. I mean, our students have really been able to learn in a way that I don't know a lot of us. I don't know if anybody really thought that if you would have told me a year ago, hey, Andy, there's going to be a situation. And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, kids are not going to be able to go to school. Educators are going to have to um, kind of reinvent the system overnight. I would have told you you were crazy and that it couldn't be done. Um, if I'm honest, that's what I would have said. Like, yeah, that's crazy. We have to have time to prepare for something like that. And yet here we are. Our learners are learning everywhere. We are giving them opportunities to make some of those authentic connections. And while nothing is true across the board, I think for the most part, um, we can say that we were that education was really able to adapt and change because of the circumstances that were laid before us. 
So learning happens everywhere, first of all. The second thing that I think we've realized is educators are innovative, right? I mean, we are able to take a situation, like I just said, take a situation that is laid before us and not just adapt, but innovate. Like, hey, we've never tried this before, but we're going to try it now and we're going to see if it works. And I have heard story after story and I've received phone call after phone call from teachers who have found really how they've always wanted to teach through this experience. Again, I know that's not true across the board. And I'm not saying that these teachers want to continue in remote learning. I'm just saying they have found ways to give their students more ownership And they have said to me, Andy, when we go back to the classroom, I'm going to teach this way. Uh, Make no mistake, they're ready to be back in the classroom, but they are jazzed and super excited about um, just being more innovative because it's been empowering to be able to be forced into a place where we had to be. And and then to kind of see that kind of play out and happen has been, I think, really powerful. Okay, the third, we are all in this together. (laughs) I think these communities that have popped up, um, I've seen groups on Facebook, uh, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, social media, however we're able to connect, just being able to come together and say, hey, this is working, this isn't working. And there's been some negativity. I'm not going to pretend I haven't seen it. And I think that's sad. And I think it's not okay But for the most part, I tend to just kind of block that stuff out and act like it doesn't exist. But for the most part, we have come together and been able to really collaborate and um, create solutions even when we couldn't be together. So those three things, learning happens everywhere, educators are innovative, and we're all in this together. Holding on to those things throughout the summer, I think, will kind of help us know that regardless of what next year looks like, we're going to be okay, y'all. Uh, it's going to be okay. And and education is going to be different. School is going to be different. But learning is learning. And I think that we have been able to see some opportunities through this experience that we may not have seen otherwise. And so I think that's powerful and something that I just always want to keep at the forefront because it's so easy to get sucked into kind of what sucked about this experience. There was a lot. There were a lot of things that gosh, not not great about kind of what we've experienced. But there are also a lot of things that that have been great that we've, we have been able to kind of see through this. So all of that to say, I wanted to start out on a positive note. And now if you're thinking, is she even going to talk about PBL? Yes, I'm going to do that now. <laughs> okay, so project-based learning. As we think about moving forward and we consider what is this going to look like as we kind of go back into the classroom. And again, I don't know that anybody knows what that's going to look like right now. But as we make plans for that, we have to start being proactive and thinking about what are some things that I know I can do that regardless of if my students are in the classroom or not in the classroom, regardless of their situation, I know that learning will happen. And I know that it will be authentic. And I know that it will be real. And I know that it's something that my learners will be able to drive and be able to um, kind of experience that ownership that they have that they have gotten a little taste of through this experience. 
Okay, so first of all, I think it's important to let's just talk about what PBL is. If you are a teacher who has made project-based learning a priority in your classroom, first of all, kudos to you. Second of all, um, just excuse this part if you already know what PBL is. Feel free to skip through this, but I am going to get through, get to some things that um, even if you've done PBL before, maybe just you haven't thought of doing it that way, or there are some things that you might want to consider. So stay tuned for sure. If you are just starting with PBL or project-based learning is something you're just considering, let's first of all dive into the definition. And I got this definition from PBL Works from the Buck Institute of Education. I'm a huge fan of that website. If you are getting started with PBL, if you're in the middle of it, if you've done it for a long time, my gosh, that website is amazing. They just have so many resources, so many ideas, and a lot of what I'm going to share in this podcast um, I've seen through their work. So the definition is this, project-based learning is a teaching method in which students learn by actively engaging in real world and personally meaningful projects. Again, that definition comes from PBL Works and some of the words that really stand out to me in their definition, first of all, students learn by being actively engaged. That's powerful. And I don't know how many times on this podcast I've talked about the word engagement and we've talked about that is that willingness to invest. So if PBL actively engages our learners, um, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's definitely something that we need to be doing. And then the whole real world. So those connections beyond the walls of the classroom and personally meaningful. Anytime something is personally meaningful, we are more willing to invest, right? Think about yourself and professional development. If you're in a professional development and you're like, I think about kindergarten teachers all the time. If you're a kindergarten teacher and you're sitting in a professional development that only provides ideas that can be done with, you know, third grade and up it's really frustrating. And so you're not going to be actively engaged. There's not going to be a willingness to invest because it's not personally meaningful. However, when you are in a training where the the speaker or whoever it is that is sharing says, if you're a kindergarten teacher, here are some practical ways that you can make this work. All of a sudden, it's personally meaningful. Now I'm going to now I'm going to listen and now there's there's that willingness to invest that wasn't there before. So again, PBL, teaching method in which students learn by actively engaging in real world and personally meaningful projects. And so when I think about PBL, I kind of think about it in three buckets, um, if that makes sense. And so thinking about the different types of project-based learning. So when I hear the words, this is just me, this isn't, this isn't what everybody thinks, but when I hear the word project-based learning, I kind of think about projects that teachers use with units. So the teacher develops a project, they push that out to their learners, and then they're given that time to explore and learn by doing as they work on the project. I also think about problem-based learning, right? Those types of projects where learners are working toward a solution to a particular problem, whether that be um, a global problem, a community problem, a problem in their district, but developing solutions through project-based learning, I think for problems, 
I consider that problem-based learning. Um, and there's so much, you can always Google these things and find tons of work around them for sure. And then finally, I'm not going to lie, my personal favorite is passion-based learning. So that is really kind of the ultimate um, way to give your students an opportunity to drive their learning, right? To give them the opportunity to learn through their passions and their interests. Oh my gosh, it's so powerful. I can only say that because I did it in my own classroom. But I'll tell you, passion-based learning is also probably the most difficult and the one that you have to be, you have to be intentional with all of these, but with passion-based learning, finding ways to weave in content, um, life-ready skills, social-emotional skills, um, just as important as it is with the other two, for sure. So as we go through and talk about these, when I say PBL, I'm talking about all three of those, project-based learning, problem-based learning, and passion-based learning. So I did a webinar last night and I called the webinar PBL as a catalyst for learning. And I called it that because of the definition of catalyst. And that definition is this, a catalyst is an agent that provokes action. And y'all, I think that when we go back into the classroom, um, regardless of what that looks like, we're going to have to sit down and consider what are our catalysts going to be? What will be the agents that will provoke action in our learners? Because they've been learning at home for a long time and they've been in charge of their own schedule. They've been in charge of where they learn, what they learn, how they learn, and if they learn. And so coming back into a situation where um, they may not have total control of that, hopefully they have a little more control, but they don't have total control of that. There's going to, those catalysts are going to have to be in place. What can we already be proactive about putting into place that we know will provoke action from our learners? And by action, I'm talking about that willingness to learn, right? That willingness to invest and, and the doing of the work and the doing of the projects. All of those things are the actions that we're going to be looking for. So I don't think it's a bad idea to, you know, when you first start professional development, I know nobody wants to talk about that right now, but it's coming. When you first start talking about professional learning that's going to happen throughout the summer and that's going to happen as we begin next school year, um, it's not a bad idea to sit down as a campus or a district and talk about um, what are those catalysts and what are the actions that we hope to see as a result of this experience, right? What are the things that we hope come out of this? And what will be the agents or the catalysts that will help that happen? I hope that makes sense. It feels like just a bunch of words coming out of my mouth, but I'm hoping the point is getting across. Um, one of the things that PBL Work shares on their website, and I absolutely love this so much, is that they talk about projects as dessert projects, and then they talk about main course projects. And this makes so much sense to me because of my own perspective of PBL for so long. When I was a traditional teacher, I viewed PBL, I definitely had the dessert project mindset. So let me share this, and this is a direct quote from PBL Works. We find it helpful to distinguish a dessert project, a short, intellectually light project served up after the teacher covers the content of a unit in the usual way from a main course project in which the project is the unit. 
And so what I think is so powerful about this, so what they're saying, let's break it down, is that a dessert project are those cute little things that we oftentimes use as fillers. And I love that they describe them as short and intellectually light, right? There's not a lot of heavy, heavy lifting in these. Um, and oftentimes we use them for our students who finish early or they need something extra. And let's be honest, um, sometimes that's our GT learners. And that is great, but if it's intellectually light, it's probably not great for them. And the reality is every student deserves that opportunity. So they're saying those dessert projects that we oftentimes use as fillers, that's very different from a main course project because that project is the unit, the content, the curriculum, the learning, all of that happens through the project. It's not like all of that is delivered before and then the project kind of sums it all up. They actually learn the content through the project, which I think makes so much sense for the situation that we are about to find ourselves in actually, for the situation we've already found ourselves in. But moving forward, as we think about education in the future, if we are in a place where our students are with us sometimes and not with us other times, we're going to have to find ways for them to um, get that curriculum, learn by doing, and, and have some real ownership in this. And seeing PBL as a main course, I think, is going to be huge and will play a big role in that. So definitely think about that when you think about if you've done any PBL in the past, um, take some time to consider, have my projects been dessert projects? And if they have, there's nothing wrong with that. So many of us have done things that way. Um, but I think it's just seeing it from a different perspective and now thinking through, OK, if I've done dessert projects in the past, how can I shift and how can I consider how I might make PBL or my projects the main course? What does that look like? So going through and thinking through that, I think is super, super powerful. Um, one of the things I do want to point out, if you, um, and I'll put the link to PBL Works in the um, show notes. It's definitely something you want to check out. And they have some really cool graphics um, around gold standard PBL. And those graphics are powerful because it talks about gold standard projects. Um, and it also talks about the things as an educator that you need to consider when you are designing a project. And so there's this, when you click on um, what is PBL, you can go to, um, you can choose gold standard project design. I'm actually doing this as I talk to you to make sure um, you guys can access it. And they share seven essential project design elements. So the things that you need to make sure that you weave into your project. And they're, I mean, they just make sense, right? Like authenticity. It's always a good idea for things to be authentic. Reflection. Um, it needs to be challenging. Student voice and choice. And you guys can go through and check all of those out. But they also, and then they go through and explain each one of those. So if, if you have questions about them or you want to know more, you can definitely check those out. Um, they also have another graphic um, on the What is PBL page, and it is uh, their seven project-based teaching practices. So just things to consider as an educator um, that will help you improve your practice if PBL is something you're wanting to make a priority. So it talks about designing and planning and building the culture and management, all of those things, really important. So again, you want to check out pblworks.org. And if you click on What is PBL, you'll be able to access those gold standard things that they share and talk about really, really powerful. 
The next thing I want to, as you start to consider PBL, I think there's some things that we have to talk about. And, and first of all, it's the things that we need to weave into the projects, because if, if we're going to make this a priority and it's going to be the way that we teach, which is what, what they're talking about when they say main course projects, if it's going to be the way that we teach, we have to be intentional and purposeful about weaving the things in that we know we are responsible for um, our students learning. We can't just, you know, develop a project and hope that these things happen um, because oftentimes when we try to do that, it doesn't happen. But when we are intentional about these things and we think through what this might look like, um, we have a much better chance of our students making the connection. So we're going to talk about the things that need to be woven in. We're going to talk about things to consider, just some logistical things. And then we're also going to, I'm going to share some easy to access resources and how to set up PBL in a way that it won't matter if your learners are in your classroom or if they are learning from home, you will be able to um, kind of manage PBL in a way that makes sense for everyone involved. Okay, so let's start with weaving it all in. Um, let's be honest, we have to, <laughs> I mean, I have a feeling that regardless of where they're learning, we're going to have to continue to teach the standards, right? And no matter where you are or where you teach, you probably have standards that you are required to teach at your specific grade level in your specific content area. Um, so when we think about content, and I wish you could see this picture right now, but I'm just going to kind of explain it to you. When we think about content, I think we get so wrapped up sometimes. And I think I talked about this a little bit last week um, when I talked about Genius Hour at Home. But we get so wrapped up sometimes in thinking about drilling down into the standards. So knowing them so well and zooming in to specific standards and knowing what they mean and what our kids need to do, that we forget sometimes that we also have to find value in the bird's eye view of our standards. And that bird's eye view is important because, okay, if you've ever flown in an airplane, I don't know about you guys, but I fly out of, I fly out of Dallas a lot. And I only notice certain things about Dallas from an airplane. I, I've been to Dallas. I mean, I, I've grown up in Texas. I've been to Dallas a lot. But when I'm in an airplane and I'm up above and I kind of have that bird's eye view, I can see how certain things connect. I can see how the interstate runs and I can see how, um, gosh, different the land is laid out and how patterns exist. I can't see that when I'm on the ground and I'm looking at things up close. I just can't. But when I have that bird's eye view, just like we should have with our standards sometimes, I'm able to see. So think about cross-curricular connections, right? When we look at our standards from up above and we can say, oh my gosh, look, this thing that's being done in science directly connects to this thing that's being done in social studies, which connects to this math standard. All of a sudden, it starts to make more sense. And we can start to make connections to those things within the projects that we design or within the projects that our students are working on. So while I, I agree that it's totally important that sometimes we're able to drill down and look at our standards closely, but don't negate the benefit of seeing our standards from that bird's eye view and looking at it from up above. Because again, that's where those cross-curricular connections um, that ability to really design an experience around the standards, I think that that's where that happens at. 
Uh, and then and then drilling down into them to really know how they need to be practiced is fine. But in order to design the experience, don't make the mistake of not looking at them um, kind of big picture for sure. Okay, so thinking about content, definitely important to weave that in. It's really about giving your students that opportunity to learn by doing, right? With PBL, they are learning as they do. And gosh, y'all, if they can do it, if they can apply it, that's where that deep understanding comes into play versus when I can just regurgitate it on a worksheet or I can do it on a unit test. That Sometimes that means nothing more than the fact that I have a good memory. And here's good news. Once I regurgitate it on the worksheet or the test, if it, if it wasn't personally meaningful, I'm done with it. I have no reason to hold on to it. And so I won't remember it long term. It won't be meaningful and I won't find value in it. So if we can take that content and put it into something that is personally meaningful and real world, it's going to be so much more powerful. And that's when they'll reach that deep level of understanding. I talk about these all the time, but it's important that we just always acknowledge uh, weaving in those life ready skills. Right. We talked about real world um, with PBL. And so weaving in collaboration, communication, creativity, critical thinking and reflection. So important. You don't have to teach kids how to do that. You have to give them the opportunity to practice it in an authentic way and then give them feedback on how they're doing. You know, if you see them not communicating well or you realize, hey, every time you're listening to someone talk, you are listening to respond. Just give them that feedback. Hey, I noticed that when you're talking to your outside expert, you're always waiting to get in and say something. When you're communicating, it's important to listen to understand and then helping them understand what that looks like and how to do it. But you don't have to do a whole lesson on communication. Just give them the opportunity to practice it and provide feedback along the way. Also weaving in social emotional skills. And, and I think I talked about this last week as well, but CASEL, C-A-S-E-L dot org. Such a great resource. Um, they have five competencies for social emotional skills, and they are self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, relationship skills, and social awareness. And those five pieces gosh, can be woven in so easily to PBL, whether it's project-based, problem-based, or passion-based. I think that um, giving kids opportunities to practice these and being intentional about that um, really takes project-based learning to a new level. And, and how powerful to weave these into what they're already doing rather than see them as something separate. Um, I think for so long, I know that when I taught for so long, social emotional learning was something that was done when the counselor came in on Fridays and it just wasn't seen as something that we prioritized every day. And now more than ever, SEL is going to be important. It's not going to be optional. It's going to have to be something that is woven into everything that we do. So knowing what these are, and considering how you can weave them into the projects that you design or the um, projects that your students are working on is going to be really important. So check that out, casel.org. Very, very cool. Um, things to consider. So when you are thinking about project-based learning, I think really considering a few things logistically that we just have to think through. First of all, time frame. Are you going to give your students a particular time frame, time frame for a project or are you going to leave that up to them? Uh, I think either way works. I think with passion-based learning, it's a little bit more difficult to give a specific time frame because it's 
their project and how do you know how long it's going to (laughs) take? So letting them manage their own time, um, which is self-management an SEL skill is not a bad idea, but if it is a project um, that you've assigned as a teacher and something you're asking them to do, I think that it's okay to kind of say, Hey, here's, you guys have two to three weeks to work on this or a week or whatever that looks like. Another thing that we're going to have to consider with PDL moving forward is materials. Are the materials that are required for this project something that my students have at home? Is it something that we have at school? And if we have a hybrid classroom where they're going back and forth, what will that look like? How will we, you know, will they be able to take the materials home with them? Will they not? And and what does that look like for the project and how I'm going to design um, when they'll be working on it and how they'll be working on it? Access to technology. That's a big conversation right now, that whole equity conversation. Access to technology is, gosh, uh, it's, it's hard to think about some of these experiences without that. But the reality is some of our kids do not have access, whether it is a lack of devices, a lack of Wi-Fi, Um, I live in a very small town in Texas and we don't always have great Wi-Fi. And that's frustrating for my kids sometimes when they're working on the things they have to work on for school. But sometimes we just have to push the pause button and say, you know what, we'll finish this later. (laughs) Wi-Fi isn't working. What do you do? Um, So considering what what are the options if they don't have access to technology, how will I make this work? And again, that's just that opportunity to be proactive and think about it before it happens. Right. Know kind of where the pitfalls are going to be and figure out how am I going to get across those when they happen? Independent versus group projects. I know last night on the webinar, um, someone had commented about how collaboration is hard. (laughs) It's a little bit harder now. Um, And so when you're designing projects, will they be independent or will they be group projects? And if they're going to be group projects, how will my learners collaborate? How will they connect? And again, some of that comes back to that access to technology. Um, And then outside experts, those play a big role in projects. So they should, um, right? If your students are learning about something, it makes sense for them to talk to an expert or talk to somebody who is Um, has experience with what they're working on. I know that with passion-based learning with Genius Hour, that was a big priority in my classroom and it was powerful. Outside experts are so powerful and it gives our kids an opportunity to practice communication, collaboration, um, all of those things. And so what will that look like if they are, you know, regardless of what the learning situation looks like, how can they connect to outside experts? How will I get permission for that? Those types of things, thinking through that, prior to the school year so that you can start gearing up. And thinking through that permission piece is just another opportunity to be proactive, to be thinking about if this is how I'm going to teach, if I'm going to use PBL as my main dish, um, how can I get permission for this early on and do this at the beginning of the school year so that I don't have to feel like I have to do these things throughout because then you feel like you're being reactive and it feels like you're behind where if you can get in on the front end and get the permission slips explaining what PBL is, what all it involves, what that's going to look like. um, It's just less work. It's just front loading, which is always a good idea and something that I think um, you'll find really beneficial moving forward. Okay, so moving right along, as we talk about the setup of PBL and what that can look like, um, I think it's important to consider where 
you can manage your project-based learning or how you're going to manage it. And there's so many different options. Um, Google Classroom is a great place to do that. If you have used Google Classroom recently, you know that over on the side you can, um, or I say over on the side just because I'm seeing Classroom in my head, um, but you can develop, you can create topics. And so think about if you had a PBL Classroom where your students could even choose from different projects and you could set those projects up as topics and then all of the work could kind of be done. I always think of them as buckets. All of the work could be dumped into those buckets so that it's organized nicely and it doesn't feel like it's all over the place. And it makes it a lot easier for your students to go find the things that you're asking them to do when you set things up using the topics in classroom. That could be done in any LMS. Um, to be honest, I have more experience with classroom than I do anything else. But I'm sure you could set something like this up in Schoology. Just being um, thinking through how will I, where will they share their work? Where will they document their learning? Those types of things. Google Sites, if you haven't seen the new-ish Google Sites, uh, it's so easy to use, y'all. I mean, creating a site for a project. So if you're doing a PBL um, and it's a project that you've created for your students, Setting that up in Google Sites is so easy because you have different pages. Uh, you can organize it in so many different ways. There are buttons they could click on to access information. Just super easy. And it would be a great way to kind of organize a project as well. And then thinking through where are they going to, where are my students going to put their work? How are they going to show? So I see Google Sites as more of a place for them to get the information but then you would have to have a place for them to share their work and to document. So maybe it's a it's a combination of Google Sites and Google Classroom that you use. Uh, I'm a big fan of Thrively. That's certainly not a secret. Um, and I've recently put the six P's of Genius Hour into Thrively. And I have created projects that are really easy to access. So I'll put in the show notes how you can access these, but you'll go to Thrively.com, make sure that you have an account, and the playlist is called The Six P's of Genius Hour with Andy McNair. And I am just constantly creating projects for your students to access and use. And when they're working on the project, they have a collaboration feed. And within that collaboration feed, they can share text, they can share audio, video, so many options. That is a great place for your students to not only have access to the project, but to also be able to document their learning and share their thoughts throughout the project. Um, so right now that is free until June 30th. And so something you definitely want to check out and the code is all caps, six P's Andy. So six P S A N D I. All of those projects are in there. I just added a new one um, on geography. So lots of different options. Again, that's thrively.com and you'll find that information in the show notes. Um, you could also create projects in Flipgrid, right? Creating a grid. Um, and if you haven't seen Flipgrid before, it's a place for students to document learning and, and share things, collaborate, communicate through video. But what's great about it is you can set up different topics. So you could set that up so many different ways. You could have one project be a grid and the different topics could be the different things that they have to do within the project. Or you could have one grid and have different projects be the different topics. Just there's so many, one size does not fit all, right? We're all different as educators. We all have different kids. So however it makes sense for you and your learners, 
that's how you should set it up. And chances are you may set it up one way and your kids may say, this isn't working for us or this isn't going the way that we thought it would. Don't be afraid to pivot and try something different, right? Okay, we're going to have a plan B. Another thing that you can be thinking through um, and, and kind of front load is we're going to try Flipgrid. If Flipgrid doesn't work, my plan B is this so that you kind of have that already thought out and you don't have to go into panic mode if something doesn't work. Now, thinking about where you're going to set it up is important, but also what do I need to set up? What do I need to share with them? And I think there's several things. I think one of the things you have to think through is how are you going to deliver the task, the problem, or how will they find their passion? How are you going to get them to get there? Is that a choice they're going to have? Are you creating the task? What is that going to look like? How will they know what problems they need to solve? Just considering those things uh, really important. How will they document their learning? How will you know that they're making connections to the standards? What will that look like? Um, and that's not uh, difficult to do. That can be done through a blog. It could be done through a vlog, through video. It could be done on Flipgrid. Um, they could just use a journal, however you want them to do that. And that, again, may depend on the situation and what learning looks like, uh, where they're learning as we move forward. But making connections to the content, as we talked about, connecting the standards to whatever PBL they are doing is important. Um, and having documentation of that is always a good idea. So giving them that opportunity to kind of write that down, put it somewhere, um, something to think about. Reflection throughout the experience. You know, John Dewey says we don't learn from an experience. We learn from, or he said, we don't learn from an experience. We learn from reflecting on an experience. And I believe that to be so true, just based on my own teaching experience and what I saw from my learners. So where will you ask them to reflect and how will they reflect? Will you give them a question uh, will they reflect on their own? And how will you get them to make that shift from remembering, which is what they've done so often in school, to reflecting and really understanding what that looks like? Um, I think it's a good idea, too. I'm a big fan of KWHLAQ. Uh, Paul Solars, who wrote Learn Like a Pirate, he's the first person that I ever heard talk about that. I know that on languages.org, there's a great um, I think post about it as well, but a KWH LAQ. And if you've ever heard me talk about genius hour and how we set it up, we use that. And, um, it looks like this. I always think of KWH as the first half and LAQ as the second half. So at the beginning of a project, they would share what they know, what they want to know and how they're going to find out. That's the KWH. Then at the end, they would share their LAQ. What did I learn? What action did I take? And what questions do I still have? And that's the LAQ. So KWH LAQ is a great way to kind of wrap up a project and put a bow on it so that um, students can look back and see, hey, what did I learn? What do I still want to know? All of those things. Uh, definitely something you want to check out. And if you want to know more about that, you can always just Google KWH LAQ. If you forgot what I just said and didn't have time to write it down because I talk super fast, feel free to Google that. And I will um, include some information in the show notes as well. Okay. So as we kind of wrap up, and I know this has been longer than my typical podcast, but as we wrap up, I want to share some easy to access resources. Um, first of all, if you're thinking about PBL at all, you want to check out PBL Works. Um, just so many ideas, so many resources, so many free things that you can use to make this work. It's just, again, thinking through 
what will this look like if we're in the classroom? What will it look like if we're not? And what will it look like if it's a mixture of both? Um, just having a plan, I think, is not not a bad idea. We in Texas have a website um, called the T Texas Performance Standards Project. Um, we, we talk about this a lot with our gifted and talented students, but there are so many great project ideas there. And even if you just go there to use it as a springboard for ideas, like, hey, I just can't, if you're like me, I'm not the most creative educator. Like I can't always think of really cool things um, unless I kind of have a springboard. I need something to kind of get me going. And the Texas Performance Standards Project has a great place, um, is a great place to find projects that are uh, divided up by grade level. And you can access all sorts of things there. So definitely something to check out. I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, let me mention that PBL Works has projects as well. You can just click on projects. And if you have a, a free account, you'll be able to access those projects. And then finally, Genius Hour. Um, so I actually have a page on my website. It's just andymcnair.com. And if you click on Genius Hour, you'll be able to find all sorts of resources for passion-based learning and what that can look like as well. So those resources are easy. They're free. Um, just something you definitely want to check out. Two things I want to say before I wrap up. Number one, this is different. Expect your learners to react differently. We are not in a place that we've ever been before. So even if you make PBL a priority next year, don't think that it's going to be or it's going to kind of run the same way PBL is in the past, has in the past. Sorry, all of a sudden I can't talk. Instead, understand that this is different. We are in a different time. Our students are going to react differently to so much. So don't be too hard on yourself. Um, don't be too hard on your students. Just be willing to have conversations with them. Ask questions. What's working? What's not? What would you guys like to see? What? How can I make this better for you? Uh, and don't be afraid to tell them how they can make it better for you because that's important as well. And um, finally, keep it authentic. That's one of the best things about PBL is that it's authentic. It's real. Those real world connections and um, those personally meaningful moments that is what makes it so powerful. So keep it authentic. Weave in those pieces that we've talked about, but be willing to just kind of keep it real and, and, and don't feel like um, you have to always drive the learning. Give them an opportunity to do that. They've had a little taste of that and they're going to come in um, with, with that experience. And so we don't want to go backwards, right? We don't want to go back to that place where they felt like we had to be on top of them and dictating everything that they did, when, how, what, and if they learn. Um, but we want to kind of come to a middle ground where it is, you know, a give and take of sometimes, sometimes we have control, sometimes they have control and, and helping them understand what that can look like and how that works. So, um, like I said, I'm so sorry. Today's episode was a little bit longer than I intended, but I had a lot to share and I wanted to make sure that when we think about PBL and what it can look like with our experience that we are with our current circumstances and with the circumstances that are probably to come, it makes sense. And it's something to definitely consider. If you have any questions or want to know more or want to dive deeper into any of these topics, feel free to reach out. 
You can always check out my website at andymcnair.com. You can always email me at mcnairandy at gmail.com. I would love to talk more with you about this. Thank you so much for taking time, spending your day with me, some of your day with me, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to learn with me today. I absolutely love this community and enjoy sharing and learning with you. Check out today's episode notes by swapping up in most podcast apps. If you'd like to learn and connect more, you can follow me over on Twitter at McNairAN3, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at A Meaningful Mess. You can always find tons of resources, inspiration, and information over on my website, andymcnair.com. Be sure to check out my blog, Genius Hour resources, and so much more. Enjoy the rest of your day, and as always, I hope that today's episode has inspired you to find meaning in your mess.